I'm Nick Law, and you're listening to the Hop Forward Podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hop Forward is a weekly podcast dedicated to the craft beer industry, featuring interviews, discussions, and stories from the whole brewing supply chain from grain to glass. So grab yourself a glass, pour yourself a beer, and get ready to hop forward in the brewing and beer business. Hello, brewers and beer buddies, and welcome to yet another sesh on the Hot Four podcast. Recently, I've been paying more attention to brewing practices, especially in the context of these shows. A few weeks back, we had Ali Kappa on the show from the British Hop Association talking about the plight of uh, hop farmers. Uh, last week, we had Bill McFarland on from Omega Yeast uh, sharing some of his fermentation practices and focused a little bit on the Gavik yeast strain. And this week, I took the opportunity to talk to the team from Munson's Malt uh, to talk about malt malting and using malt extracts. I'm, uh, I'm gearing myself up to talk to someone clever about water, but, you know, as uh, Jesse Pinkman puts it from Breaking Bad, it's like science and shit. And truth be told, I'm not feeling robust enough for that conversation at the moment. So uh, we'll, we'll save that for another time. But not to rant um, whilst we're talking about malt. Uh, I always feel that malt gets overlooked by many brewers and especially by craft beer drinkers. Whereas many beers are sold on the strength of their hop varieties, yeast strains, or how many donuts and adjuncts you can stuff into that marshmallow, whipped cream, creme brulee, blueberry muffin, macchiato, imperial barley wine. By the way, if you're planning on brewing that, feel free to send me one. I have a bit of a sweet tooth. Nobody still really talks about malt or sells beers based on the strength of their malt bill unless you're a maltster or a bit of a nerd like I am. Needless to say, you could often find me around the brewery, albeit these days it's in the privacy of, uh, chewing on malt or presenting someone with a handful of grains and saying with a mouthful, that was uh, translated as taste that paddy. And he would normally decline and he'd be right to do so particularly in these COVID days. Uh, There's no denying, um, keep those hands washed, don't forget. As far as I'm concerned, there's no denying that um, various malt additions, even subtle ones, you know, a small amount of caramel here or there, or experimenting with other cereals, even such as spelt or rye, can make such a huge difference to a beer. As an aside, I used to brew a red rye IPA called Rye Joyce with rye, obviously. Uh, Caramel Munich 2, which is like the best malt variety of all time. And a blend and hint of other specialty bolts, all backed up with floor malted Maris Otter, and it was mwah, utterly divine. However, as various brewers I've spoken to have recently shared their similar experiences, it was a complete and utter nightmare to sell. And yeah, rye, it's got a very particular taste, doesn't it? And I, I do get it, not everyone likes it. But still, even now, unless it's like a stout, a big chewy stout, People don't have good associations with a multi-beer. And maybe this is what I don't like about New England IPAs, that they're all fluff and hops, often. Controversial, I know. Uh, Give me a big West Coast IPA that's underpinned by a hefty grist bill, or even a Best Bitter. Yes, I said it, a Best Bitter any day. Hello? Hello? Is anyone there? I think they tuned out when I said Best Bitter. 
For those of you who are still listening, uh, on this week's episode, myself and the team from Munson's Malt, who will introduce themselves shortly, uh, had a conversation a while back about the journey of malt from grain to glass, how malt is selected from the harvest. Uh, we investigate the importance of technical data sheets and we chat at length about malt extracts and also probe the myth about the malt extract tang that many homebrewers in particular endlessly debate on forums. We we have an emphatic answer to that. Stay tuned if uh, you're interested in that. And I'm, I'm really quite intrigued by extracts, um, particularly as a really small brewer. Uh, means I can kind of, um, my brew kit's not very big, but I, my fermenters are bigger than my brew kettle. means I can kind of bump up my volume a bit and brew more. So we get into that and regardless of what size you are, whether you're a small brewer like me or you've got a big brewery, you know, and you're needing to bump up your ABV for obviously that huge marshmallow stout I mentioned earlier, then I hope you get a lot out of that bit. Again, as with last week, just to be transparent and clear, although Muntons in the past have sponsored the show on occasion, this episode wasn't paid for. It's not an advertorial or anything like that. Obviously, we have uh, great sponsors who do sponsor the show, um, but this came about because basically me and Adam, uh, one of the guests on the show, got into a conversation and decided it'd be fun to record a podcast about malt. And although we discussed some of the history behind Muntons and a couple of their extract products in particular, we try to refer to maltings as a generalisation rather than specifically Munton varieties of malt. I think what this episode does highlight as the one last week with Amiga Yeast and goes to show is that whoever supplies your raw ingredients, if anything, I found from personal experience that they're generally really passionate individuals who have loads of technical knowledge like you can harvest and put into practice in your own brew house. And to be honest, that's what this podcast is all about. It's about learning and um, increasing your knowledge of beer so you can run a better beer business, you can brew better beer, you can sell more of it you can set up the best bar in town and just generally hot rocket your way to success so as usual before we pull open the drawstring from your malt bag weigh out the ingredients write down the batch codes on your brew card and taste a chewy mouthful chewy is the word of the day isn't it uh, of that nutty floor malted mice otter here's all the necessary blood if you like the Hot Forward podcast, then follow us on all the socials at Hot Forward Beers. Subscribe to the show and leave us a review on iTunes and Spotify and all of the good podcasting platforms. And visit our website, hotforward.beer, to connect with us and find out how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business with branding and creative media for breweries, bars, bottle shops and supply chain businesses. For now, grab a beer and let's crack open today's discussion. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by the team from Munson's Malt, a UK maltster that is celebrating their 100th anniversary. Hello. Hi, Nick. Hello. Hello. A hundred years. You're, you're all looking quite well, so you're hundred years old. <laughs> well, bit, bit the shadows, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, before we take a deep dive into the world of malting and brewing, I'd love it if you could each introduce yourselves and the roles you play within Munson's. Fine, yeah. So, uh, yeah, thanks a lot, Nick. Um, I'm Adam Darns. I'm a brewing and distilling sales manager uh, for Munson's Malt, looking after the uh, the North and the Midlands uh, of England. 
Yeah, I'm Fabian Clark. I'm the Senior Product Development Technologist at Muntins. I basically do product development for brewing and distilling and beverage applications and I take care of customer problems and customer questions, just sort of help around wherever wherever I'm needed. Hi, Nick. I'm David Hanna. I'm the uh, Brewing and Distilling Malt Sales Manager for Scotland. You might have been able to guess that. Um, and uh, yeah, I've been with Muntins five years and uh, looking after um, predominantly the, 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 the distilling uh, element in Scotland just because of where we are, uh, but looking after the, the brewing all the way down to sort of the north of England, Cumbria, and uh, and the sort of northeast as well. Um, yeah, hi Nick, uh, glad to be here. Um, like Adam and David, I'm a brewing and distilling area sales manager. Um, I look after London, the south of England, uh, and Wales. Um, I've been with Muntins for uh, coming up for four years, actually, uh, and in the sales team for the last two. So, yeah, just looking after uh, breweries and distilleries in the south. Nice one, Brill. Well, I'm glad to have you on the show. Um, so, first off, as I said earlier, 100 years, that's that's quite a milestone. Um, I mean, can you give me a brief history of the maltings and the, the kind of food and beverage businesses that you supply malt for? Because it's not just brewing and distilling, is it? No, and I'll take that one Nick uh, no we <clears throat> yeah we're certainly celebrating our, our 100th year in business this year um, a brief sort of overview of the history <clears throat> is that uh, we began manufacturing malted ingredients in Bedford all the way back on the 27th of September 1921 uh, and it was formed by the Munton Baker family and since then we've had quite a few changes and expansions uh, however we still pride ourselves that we're very much a family business and have remained as such since the beginning, um, all the way to our current chairman, who's very much hands-on and represents a hands-on approach that we still have to this day. Um, but moving sort of forward in the sort of timeline, we moved to Stowe Market in Suffolk in 1948. And we went on to build our second maltings in Bridlington in Yorkshire in 1974. And a large part of our ethos um, has always been reinvesting back into the business, which allows us to kind of grow sustainably. Um, so a few examples of this, that we've got market-leading biomass plants and anaerobic digesters at our maltings. We've uh, got offices and operations in Singapore, Holland, USA, and we've even got a malted ingredients facility in Thailand. Right. And um, uh, more recently, we've actually built a greenfield uh, peated malt production facility, uh, in Yorkshire, which supports our distilling customers in Scotland and uh, and globally as well. Right. Um, so that's just a kind of overview of the history of of us. But with regards to the the food and beverage uh, businesses that we supply to, it's quite a large spectrum, which I'm sure you can imagine. Um, you know, as you mentioned, that we do supply the sort of craft bulk and national breweries with the, with the malt grain, but. Um, and we also supply the distilleries, Scotland and uh, and globally. But our malted ingredients division that you touched on earlier uh, supplies a lot of bespoke malted uh, products into the food industry, into sort of breads and flours and things that are, are used in the UK and overseas. Um, we also, something that's sometimes understated rather than missed, is our homebrew division that we um, supply into. We've got our own uh, homebrew range and we supply malt extracts uh, into uh, homebrew producers. Um, so that's a big, a, a growing market and a massive division for us as well. Mm. So that's kind of some of 
it's a very sort of brief uh, overview of of us and the, the businesses we work with. But we're we are really kind of proud that we've achieved all of this in just a hundred years. No, that sounds kind of flippant, but you know it's quite remarkable to have this sort of footprint and this sort of malting industry after only a hundred years. And I know you know, behalf of everyone, the guys and everyone at Winton's that we're really kind of honoured to be part of the business this year, particularly when we celebrate our centenary. Yeah. I had no idea Munson's was so large because I know when I first got into brewing, I mean, going back, you know, 2013, 2014, um, and I'd watch YouTube and, and seeing um, people how to make beer and stuff. Um, you know, to, Americans talking about, Mun, Mun, you know, Munson's malt extract and stuff. Um, so... I don't, I don't know why I didn't never really put two and two together and equated Munton's malt with the extracts, you know, and, and the fact that you've got locations all over the world. So, um, yeah, hundred years and, you know, that's, that's, that's good going. Um, as a brewing focused show, I'd, I'd like to, you know, explore the process of malting and how brewers can use malts to the best effects in their beers and, and all that stuff. But before we do, I understand the malting's suffered a fire last year. Yeah, there's a there's a couple of incidents that we could. Uh, oh talk right, about. okay. We've got we've got the um, the one at Stowe Market last year, which is I would imagine everything smelled like Maltesers, right? <laughs> well, it's it's a funny funny story, really. I mean, unfortunately, there there was no smell of uh, Maltesers. Um, missed opportunity. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, but so it goes without saying that any fire at a Maltings is um is, is taken pretty damn seriously. Mm. Um, with with tens of thousands of tons of of grain in silos, we've essentially got a ready-made fuel source right there. So um, the, the potential risk is pretty high when you when you think about it. So yeah, making sure everyone's safe is is every is our main focus. Um, but yeah, the the incident um, the you alluded to happened last year yeah, in our grain dryer, and really there was just a, a small pocket of uh, of smouldering grains. Which was sort of let off a little bit of smoke and set off the, the fire and, and smoke alarms. Um, thankfully, our grain dryer was installed just a couple of years ago. And as far as grain dryers go, it's a state of the art bit of kit uh, and it's got a, an automated water dousing si- um, system. So as soon as there was some smoke detected, the, uh, this system kicked in and then stopped anything and um, spreading any further. Um, that's not to say that the, uh, the fire brigade. Uh, weren't called and they they were they, they they turned up in in next to no time and made sure that the area was safe and and obviously no one was at risk uh, but it certainly didn't stop the local media <laughs> grabbing hold of the the story and uh and yeah according to them we had every fire brigade sort of from from Suffolk Norfolk and Cambridge on site tackling this major blaze uh but I, I can assure you that it, it certainly wasn't anything of the sort um, right yeah, we uh, <laughs> it was blowing up a little bit in the media. I was going to say it sounded a lot, a lot more dramatic when I looked it up online. I was like, "Wow, cool." Okay, well, so d- diving into malt, um, I think many of our brewers will be familiar with the basics of the malting process. So I, d- I don't think we need to go too deep into that. Um, but you know, we do get home brewers and or general beer geeks listen to this. So um, just very very quickly, uh, just give us an, a, a very quick overview of the malting process how it works and and um, how it gives brewers the sugars they need to make beer sure um well to start with you take grain um normally barley um then you steep it and then you germinate it and then you kill it so basically you take the grain initially we would want to remove any stones foreign matter like dust and straw and then we dry it down to about 12 percent moisture um that's so that we can store it 
basically, because we take it, most of it in around harvest time. Um, we then steep it, which is where we soak it in water, um, which is the first stage of the mold production. Um, it typically takes about 48 hours, during which time the grain will be covered twice, sometimes three times um, with water, and you get a period of, uh, of rest as well where there's no water on there, and that just gives it time to hydrate fully. Uh, during steeping, the grain will take up to about 45% moisture. Um, after that, we go to the germination stage, which is basically where you're trying to encourage the grain <coughs> to, to grow um, in controlled conditions. So going from grain, seed, into a plant, basically. Um, and it's during this process where natural enzymes are produced and these enzymes break down the starch into the fermentable sugars that the brewer wants. Right. So we can make beer. Um, the, the, the final part is kilning, which is another key part for brewers because that's where <clears throat> the um, multi flavors and characteristics are developed. So that's where we're uh, <clears throat> we're drying the grain back down to about th between three and six percent moisture, um, and this is the part which develops uh, color and flavor. And you'll see that in the finished beer. Awesome. Just while we're on this uh, subject, and apologies for any brewers out there, I already know all this stuff, and I, don't, I certainly don't want to teach anyone to suck eggs, but um, how should a brewer read those technical sheets that come so they can make um, adjustments to their brew according to things like ni nitrogen levels or moisture, as you, you just sort of referred to? And are there any bits on um, those information data sheets that, in your opinion, you think get overlooked by brewers and wh why should they pay more attention? So uh, what, what, how should a brewer read those and what things in particular should they be looking for? Um, so, so first, first off, I'd, I'd always recommend to a brewer to definitely read the uh, certificate of analysis that comes with the malt. Um, I think one of the, the, the points that I've seen in, in a few breweries is you, there's a difference between a certificate of analysis and a spec sheet. So the, a lot of brewers will have a spec sheet on file of all of their supplier's malt, which has a, a range for all the different sort of parameters that, that the malt will be delivered against. But that, of course, is a, a range that we work to achieve every time. The certificate of analysis, analysis that comes with every batch will actually show exactly what that ton of malt or those that couple of tons of malt, um, what the parameters are for that specific batch. And the, the, I mean, reading all of it makes sense uh, and adjusting recipes accordingly. But the, probably the, the key ones to look at um, are moisture, total nitrogen, and total soluble nitrogen. The, of course, all the other ones are important, but I'd, I'd probably pull those out. Uh, moisture and nitrogen get looked at quite, quite, quite a lot by all brewers. But I think the, the, one of the things that um, sometimes gets overlooked is adjusting recipes for, for moisture. So one is all. The, the extract level on the, the malt is often declared as dry weight, which basically doesn't account for moisture. So if you account for the moisture in your in your malt, instead of just calculating on a dry weight basis, your recipes will be more accurate. Your, your production will be a lot more consistent. Similarly, accounting for changes in moisture. So if you have a malt batch that's a 5% moisture and then your next batch is at 5.5% moisture, that half percent of moisture will basically means that a half percent of the, the the total say 500 kilos ton of malt that you put in your mash tun is not extract but it's more moisture so you need to sort of slightly adjust to make sure that you you get out at the exact same level again another one that's definitely worth looking at especially uh in the times today where there's a lot of 
beer styles with uh, additional haze or extra body that's required or, or low alcohol styles where we need more body is the nitrogen value. Look, typically, uh, especially for British cask ale, uh, the, the, the dream is low nitrogen malt that makes it very easy to not have huge amounts of, of protein flying around in the beer, making the cask conditioning in times just, just a little faster. You need less findings. Um, but if you're going to try and make a style like a New England IPA where you're already going to add loads of oats and wheat to the beer, just to add all of that body and haze and, and, and um, <clears throat> to the beer, you might want to use a base malt with a slightly higher nitrogen level because, of course, there's no point having really low nitrogen, making it really good for, for car scale and, and really fast-finding beer, and then chucking a load of stuff in that adds haze to it, and now you, you've got haze in there that will drop out too quickly, potentially. Uh, and the, the third one, as I said, is uh, total soluble nitrogen, which in, in conjunction with the nitrogen shows you how much of that nitrogen in the malt will actually go into solution while you're brewing, which can have quite an effect on, on, on your brewing process where the, the higher that soluble nitrogen level is, the more nitrogen will basically be already be in solution when you're boiling and will drop out during that boil. So if you are trying to make a very, um, well, haze-forward beer, and you're dropping out all the nitrogen in the boil, you, you won't have a lot of that haze left in the, in the final product. Um, but of course, if you're using low-soluble nitrogen malts, you, you might have lower fermentability, and the malt modification level will be different. So it's, it, it's, it's always worth speaking to your maltster about the, the malt specification that you have, the, 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 the specific batch that you have, and what you're trying to do with the malt. Mm. And... Sort of tailoring the, the 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 base malt choice in in your brewery according to the two or three main styles of beer that you're making, and then working out what other adjuncts and and speciality malts you need to make sure that all of your other recipes can be built around that. Amazing, yeah, that's um, that's super interesting because I, I think I know I've been guilty of this in the past. Um, you know, is is basically you just kind of you know, often brewers can just get the different malts, you know, and, and just think I'll just sort of stick them together. Cause I know if I use, you know, a, a crystal, a chocolate, a black and a roasted barley and some flake barley, I'm going to make a stout rather than really thinking through, yeah, but what, you know, what, what kind of qualities am I looking to get? Am I trying to get a dry stout, you know, and, and all that stuff. Um, so, so just going back in the process a little bit then. So when, as a maltster, you're you're looking to take in your cereals, you know, barley, wheat, rye, oats from a field. What qualities are you looking for in that crop? Yeah, so I'll I'll field this one. Um, so before I I joined the sales team, I spent a bit of time working down uh, in our intake department. Um, so we've got a fairly decent idea of what we're looking for um, from a, from a raw material standpoint. Um, when I was down there, the manager at the time was um, very adamant that the intake is pretty much the most important part of the whole malting process. Um, he was probably slightly biased being the manager of the department. Um, but what he said is very true. That if you're going to make great malt, you have to start with great barley. And, and the same goes for, um, for, for wheat or rye or oats or anything like that. Um, so to make sure that we are starting with, with that great barley, we make sure we test every single load that, that that turns up on site and to be frank if it doesn't make our grade we don't accept it and we we send it on its merry way um so the first thing that 
that we check um, upon arrival is making sure that the barley or, or the or the wheat, the rye, the oats is the correct variety. And then, especially with barley, we're we're looking at the nitrogen content um, because first and foremost, what brewers and distillers are looking for is that that variety and then that nitrogen banding. And that's what we segregate on site. So we have our silos. Mm. We, we may well have a of an ale um, ale spec barley or a, or a lager spec barley segregated in, into different bins. And then as we want to make those different malt types, we'll pull from those separate silos. Um, but away, away from that sort of broad brush approach, pardon me, um, we're also looking at other things like grain size. We want to make sure that we've got nice, big, bold grains that are going to give us a decent extract yield. Um, so if there's if the load is full of tiny little corns, again, we'll we'll send it away. Um, we're also looking at things like moisture content to make sure it hasn't been stored at high moisture. Uh, if it has, it's it's going to possibly have gone mouldy. Then mould produces things called mycotoxins, which we which we also test for. Um, and equally, if it's too low on moisture, it may well have been dried too harshly on the farm or or at the merchant, which could kill off the barley and make it no good for malting at all. Um, we also look at things like pest contamination and if there's any, um, grain damaging bugs, um, uh, uh, present in, in the sample. Again, if there is, it's a big no, no, cause we do not want to be introducing anything like that into our silos of mm. two and a half thousand tons, uh, which yeah, is a, would be a bit of a disaster if it does happen. So we give a very, um, tight leash on that one. Um, and then other things we, we test for is like a rapid germination test to make sure that again the barley that's coming on will actually uh, will actually malt. Um, and again, if it doesn't meet our high specification, it goes out the door, and we it has to be ninety eight percent viable on intake. And that's that, that gets the, the green light to be tipped and and go into the dryer, right, before it goes to the silo. You know, I I remember um, sitting in a pub once with uh, Dan Baxter from Mabidel Brewery. Um, this was right at the start of my brewing journey. And um, I remember picking his brains um, about starting my own brewery and asking him how they managed to get a beer like Moonshine, which is their flagship pale ale, so consistent. And he said that um, beers are truly agricultural products. And as, as a brewer, you're constantly fighting to keep the same flavour profile with ingredients that all possess slightly different qualities due to their crop years and the ever-changing seasons and weather patterns so i guess on that like at munson's how do you ensure that you're getting that consistency with you, within your malt varieties when you're up against the climate um so that when when a brewer um is trying to make a core range beer using your malt they know that even with the sort of slight variations in crop here they're, they're going to get more or less the same thing each time Particularly, like I said, with the nitrogen levels, because I know I've I've looked at those um, analysis sheets before. Just when I was using malt, and sometimes on occasion you'd get a batch. Like, hang on a sec, <laughs> that's not <laughs> that's a bit higher than it normally is. Like so, like how how do you kind of account for that as a maltster? It's a challenge, Nick. That, that you're dealing with a live product. You're, mm. you're, so, um, you're constantly fighting that battle between what the British weather throws at us and how we we deal with it. Joe's kind of touched a, a lot on it with regards to the checks that we do at intake. Um, our supply chain is managed incredibly proactively and our grain teams are consistently monitoring the current year's crop, the, 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 the harvest, um, and as well as considering what's going to happen the following year. <clears throat> so, um, you know, 
across the full spectrum of crops, you know, you touched on a bit the winter, uh, spring, feed barley, wheat, rye, oats, you know, massive, massive list of crops that we'll keep an eye on. And as soon as we can obtain samples of them, um, <clears throat> we'll process them through the lab and we'll get them tested for um, an early impression of what the crop's quality and processability will look like um, and get a bit more of an understanding of the crop and, and what specification we can set for the grain. And we try to keep that <clears throat> as consistent as possible, um, not just with previous years, but consistently what the brewers and distillers are looking for with regards to that spec. Now, brewers and distillers know that there's certain aspects of the crop which is out with our control. And I know we always talk about it. We spoke about it a few times today already about nitrogen, but soluble proteins and, and things like that. Um, and such is the difficulty when you're dealing with, uh, with the live crop. But um, we, along with all maltsters in the UK, um, we are particularly fussy um, when we are receiving barley coming in. And we make no apologies for that. We, we don't shy away from that. We, we want to ensure the best quality barley is coming through. Um, and we will then, when it's received on site, as Joe said, all the checks are done and we're waiting for it to recover from dormancy and things like that. But we will micro-malt and we'll do that to, to see about what the best profile is to malt against that. Um, and that's some, uh, derived from the checks that we do, particularly if it's a, a water-sensitive um, barley, then we'll need to change our steep cycles in order to um, to, to marry up with that. Um, but the first few batches of every crop are monitored very, very closely by our malting teams, and <clears throat> these guys are experts on what to look for and knowing how to change the malting process to, to get the best possible results. Um, and we'll change our profiles accordingly. So there are a lot of detailed checks. Joe has touched on quite a lot on that intake. There's a lot mm. more, but we don't, don't want to bore you too much with it. But, <laughs> you know, we, um, we, we do complete these to an incredibly high standard. And these standards are, we need to achieve these consistently because that's what's expected from our customers. So you're absolutely right. The, 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 the weather and, and trying to keep consistently high specifications and what the brewers and distillers are looking for is a challenge but we've all these checks and with the experience of the teams that we've got we use that to the best of our ability to, in order to achieve those those uh, consistent results each time yeah so so what about climate change then and, and global warming like what effects is that having on monsters at the moment and I mean, what, what sort of things have you noticed yourselves over the last few years when you're checking um, the grains and, and how do you think it will pan out over the next decade or so as, as the weather gets more extreme? Yeah, climate change, like, there's no hiding it. it. It's had a massive impact on the maltsters, not just um, here in the UK, but um, worldwide. Um, and without wanting to delve too deep into the, the global market, but if you look just just for a moment uh, at grain trade as a as a whole, um, you realise that what's going on in Australia, in China, in uh, or, or in America has a massive impact on uh, us guys here in the UK, um, largely on price, but it, it's also around and uh, demand as well. Um, and it's it's sort of it's led Muntons to be very proactive on the sustainability agenda. Um, so we're leading the way. Um, with our carbon footprint and making sure that um, our environmental impact is as low as possible. Um, 
throughout the supply chain, right from where that seed goes in the ground to the point at which the brewer or distiller is mashing in um, with that malt. Um, but in terms of how the, the climate ch- changes is affecting us sort of uh, directly, um, I think if we if we look at um, the weather extremes that we've seen over the last few years, none more evident than back in 2018 when we saw the beast from the east blanket the the, the country in snow uh, for a, for a good few weeks. Right at the moment where the farmers were hoping to get on the fields and plant the spring crop, which is um, which is the, the large uh, sort of proportion of the barley that's used in the UK. And then so we, so we went from that extreme of of cold and snow. And then almost immediately, within a few weeks, we went into the 2018 heat wave. So not only could the farmers get sort of uh, very sort of small amounts of, of barley in the ground, also then the, the barley was was stunted in its growth by the by this really hot weather. Mm. Um, and when barley can't uh, sort of produce as many ears as is what it does when it has plenty of uh, of water and, and, and sunshine, um, it then it, it reduces the amount of ears and, and concentrates the protein. So in the 2018 harvest, we saw higher proteins and a really tightly packed uh, endosperm within the within the barley. So it made it a real pig to malt, and then caused all sorts of challenges in the brew house because of the, the slightly elevated protein levels. Um, and that that does sound a bit doom and gloom, but I, I can assure you, it's 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 not all not all bad news, um, because because of these impacts of the weather like like david alluded to earlier as an industry uh, we're constantly evolving and, and innovating um new ways to get around the, these challenges um so that there's a lot of plant breeders and seed developers out there that are developing the the barley varieties and then the wheat varieties of tomorrow that can stand up to these these extremes of weather so um although i don't know a couple of years down the line, the likes of Planet or Craft may not be here. They will be replaced with with varieties that can stand up to six inches of snow uh, in 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 March and a, and a nice hot summer for us all to get out there and drink some beer. Yeah, in the garden. It's interesting you say that because um, Bill Gates has recently written a book called How to Tackle the Climate Crisis, and um, BBC Radio, I think it was Radio Five, uh, were playing extracts from it. And he makes the point in there that actually it's one of the main ways we're going to tackle a climate crisis is by companies innovating new uh, products and ways to deal and technologies and ways to deal with um, these issues. You know, and I, I would hope most of my listeners are, you know, don't think that things like, you know, COVID vaccines have got microchips in from Microsoft and all the rest of it. Um, if that's you listening to this, by the way, feel free to tune out now. Um, but, um, you know, I, I totally agree. I, I think that, we, you know, we're going to have to come up with these technologies and uh, adapt, like say, things like um, barleys and crops and the way we do agriculture to, to tackle it. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's encouraging to hear. Um, so just, just coming off the field into the brew house then a little bit, um, what sort of things should brewers be paying attention to when it comes to putting a, a grist bill together? And I'm aware that's quite an open-ended question. And what sort of things should brewers attend to when they're, they're mashing and sparging those beers with that grist bill? Sure. Um, yeah, it is quite a wide open question, really. But um, I think initially a brewer needs to understand what style of beer 
they're looking to achieve um, and then work backwards from there. Uh, I mean, as many people think that pale and extra pale malts are exactly the same, but it's, it isn't the case. Um, first thing to consider is the variety of the barley that's used to make the malt because they all give different characteristics. You know, you've got your Marisottas, um, Planet, Craft, Laureate. Um, so and they can all give different colours, um, different body to the beer as well. Um, so the, the, the number one tip I would say really is speak to your malt supplier. <laughs> um, they're the ones that understand the malts. They're, um, they're the ones that will understand what <coughs> impacts they'll have on the beer style as well that you're looking to achieve. And, and they can send you samples as well. Literally, the best thing to start with is just to, just to chew on the grain itself. That will mm. give you a good idea of the flavour. Um, and Or you can make a little um, mini mash, just soak it in some warm water um, and then just and then drink it like a tea. Again, swirl it around the mouth. That will give you good, uh, a good idea of what flavours you're going to get in the beer at the end. Mm, that's always good with whiskey, I find. Work. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, but yeah, though, if Fabian wants to touch on actual how it affects the sparge and mashing in, yeah, um, I think I think completely uh, completely agree. First off, with what Adam said, that, that it's, it's understanding the style you want to make, and then speaking with your maltster about potentially which speciality ingredient you might be want, want, want to use to get a certain flavour profile and they'll, they, they can go through it with you. Um, when you're looking at the the actual processing, um, I mean, every brewer will, will know it's it's all about timing, temperature, pH control, uh, get, getting all of that right, and I'm, I'm not going to go into that too much. Uh, I, think, I think one of the key aspects about making – a really good beer consistently on on the mashing and sparging front is uh, looking at, at at the differences between from batch to batch of of product. So if you if you've got a really good recipe that you've worked out, um, is it's adjusting that. Uh, I, I I used to get quite a few uh, comments uh, from from brewers saying I've not changed anything and it's all gone wrong. Um, that's getting a lot less. There's a lot more brewers out there now that, that have trained quite a lot and have gained a lot of experience on brewing and, and have understood the 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 well, natural process of malting and that it's a, a, a live product that, that is quite uh, well, challenging to have exactly the same every time. And I think that's that's something that, that transfers into the brew house. And when you're mashing, you, you need to understand not only that building the grain, the, the grist bill to, to actually fit into the mash tun and, and, and work is one side of it. The other side of it is understanding that the batch that you're currently working on might have a slightly different um, gelatinization temperature so that it, from from year to year the crops te- uh, start the uh, myelograph might change and maybe last year mashing at 65 degrees was fine but this year you might need to raise it to 66 or you may be able to drop it to 64 and still get that same effect where the starch starts swelling and the enzymes can attack it but if you're uh consistently mashing at 64 and then all of a sudden you run into a crop year where the the, the weather was significantly dry uh, during <clears throat> the growth stage of the barley and all of a sudden your endosperm is tightly packed and gelatinization doesn't occur until 65 degrees, uh, a lot of brewers will, will run into issues where it, it, they, they don't, don't achieve um, the gravity that they need because they're not releasing all the starch, not because they've done 
something wrong in the brewing process. It's just they haven't adjusted potentially to to what it what it sh- what the grain requires that specific year. And it's it's basically just keeping on top of that and not constantly changing everything. But at the start of a a, a crop rotation, uh, looking at what the pro- how the process will change and adjusting to match up with that. And it's it's yeah, it's just something that we do in our malt extract factory. Once a year, as soon as we start going over to the uh, well, to the new crop, uh, the extra factory that we have is a, a fairly significantly sized brewery um, that basically we have a look at the first few batches of new crop going through and sort of just tweak temperatures just a little bit here, have a look at, okay, the, the pH is slightly different than it was in the last couple of batches. Okay, so we might just adjust our water chemistry a little bit here and then on on, on the sparging, it's looking at okay the, the grain's taking up more water than it than it was last year so we might increase the liquid to grist ratio in the mash tun and reduce the sparge so that but at the end of the process our wort is exactly the same as as it as it was last year and it is, as it is always and our product is very very consistent and it's, it's something that that i'd recommend to brewers is all the sort of fine tweaks of getting the flow completely right that's that's something you can't really give too many tips on because there's so many different brewing systems out there that uh, everyone has their own sort of, sort of almost black magic version of how to how to run their machine um but the 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 looking at how the natural product changes from year to year from supplier to supplier and, and from batch to batch is, is is always worth keeping an eye on and, and just making sure that it's running the same and if something changes in in the product and or in in in, in your own product um, just just speaking with your malt supplier and working out what what can we look at to to, to get it back to where it should be. Mm. That's really interesting what you said about um, how even those crop years can change what temperature you need to mash in at. Um, I mean that and, and the way you just sort of summarised at the end with everyone's system so different. It, it, it's so true, and um, you know one of the things. I've, you know, I say to when I do brewery consultancy is when people ask about, oh, what temperature should I be mashing in at? My brewery software has said I should mash in at this. I'm just like, don't, don't look at the brewery software. You're going to have to do several test brews and figure that out. And you're going to have to, and it's going to change at the time of year, depending on how warm it is, the atmosphere is now, you know, cold the water is and all the rest of it. And yeah, um, absolute my field. So, I mean, you touched on malt extract there. Um, so... I mean, malt extract tends to be one of those things that you come across more with homebrewers than I would, I would say commercial brewers. And you also hear in homebrewing circles, and I'm not sure how true this is, so I'd, I'd love it if there's a some some defining answer to this that you could give, that there, that uh, brewing with extract can give beer a, a quote-unquote tang. Like, how true is that? Yeah, um, I think that there is a grain of truth um, to that, uh, that homebrew tang, as you say. Um, Fabian's done a bit of work to sort of uh, to pinpoint where that comes from, and at the moment, it's it's coming back down to the fact that it's just the differences between a home um, brewery setup versus a commercial brewery. In a commercial brewery, you've got full control over everything from from temperature to to, to dissolved oxygen. So it's it, it's that control element that really uh, determines the tang. So yeah, I don't have a have a magic bullet to to answer that question, um, but it's on on the second. Uh, part of the question in terms of our extract range that we're offering to to commercial brewers, um, 
it's it's important to to differentiate homebrew with against uh, our other other extracts. Indeed, homebrew is a malt extract, but malt extracts aren't necessarily homebrew. Um, so, we've actually had a, had a range of of brewing um, specific extracts for a little while now, um, and, and they're being used to, to great effect. Uh, whether it be boosting ABV um, for a you know a punchy impy stout, or adjusting color, uh, or, or indeed adjusting pH with uh, with one of our uh, our latest products, our, our, our sour malt extract. Um, and we've seen a, a growing interest in in how these extracts can be used to to solve sort of day to day challenges that small, medium, and large breweries breweries face. Um, and the reason for the the, the more recent um, push of our of our extract range into the brewing world really focuses around um, some of the some of the names of the products. And to be honest, um, us as a sales team, uh, the, some of the names confused even us. So we wanted to uh, to, to rebrand and, and simplify the names, um, so that so the names of the products were actually more reflective of what they did right. within the brew house. Well, can you, can you give me an example of some of the names, just for anyone that's not familiar? Yeah, of course. So we have a, a an extract that's made with pale ale uh, malt called Cedar X Light. Um, the name Cedar X is the, the name of our malt house is the Cedars Malt House, uh, and then the X bit being extract. Um, but if you don't know that story, that name doesn't mean too much. So, so rather than um, stick with that, we've changed it to a, a very Ron Seal type name of Pale Ale Malt Extract. So there it you does go. exactly what it says <laughs> on the tin. The tin yeah. um, and, and hopefully it should be fairly obvious that it can be used as a direct substitute um, for, any bar, uh, for any base malt. Sorry. So yeah, for a, pretty much you can use it as a one-for-one one substitute um, for malt. And it's like having a 100% uh, brew house efficiency. Yeah. So j- just coming back to this tang, sorry, I can't get away from this, but like you're, you're saying that homebrewers have less control over um, commercial brewers. Um, but, you know, I, I know in, in the world of, particularly in places like the USA, where, you know, there's some really like amazing home breweries, you know, that are uh, from a, a technological point of view, much although albeit scaled down much better than some of the older 10 barrel brew houses in the uk so like what from a scientific point of view is is happening to get that tang where where is it coming from exactly so so it's quite a difficult question to answer there's been lots of work done over the last 10 years on on this sort of homebrew tang and and what it is and, and where that 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 flavor comes from uh, what one of the issues around the, is, is is it being named Tang because people don't know that they just say yeah that tastes a bit homebrewy and they, they weren't sure. Um, it's it's something that we've 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 tried different things, had a look at different options, and we've seen very good results um, doing test homebrew in our in our MPD uh, kitchen. So we we on on site have a centre for excellence where we do a lot of the homebrew development and. Uh, homebrew technologist basically brews out every kit during development and after after production and has a look and make sure that, that, that we're happy with the product the, the what that one one option for that tang is is that there are very sophisticated homebrewing systems but there are also um buckets in in airing cupboards and depending on which end of that spectrum you are on the the that that tang can be more or less 
um, where we've done um, homebrew extract based brews through our uh, microbrewery, again in our Centre for Excellence, and had extremely good results where there is no difference to a commercial beer anymore because it's been made on a piece of equipment, as as you just described, where, where the guys have got full temperature control. They know exactly what they're doing. Um, and that same batch of product, if it's run through um, a, a, a fairly beginner-level um, piece of uh, homebrew equipment, um, but taken care of quite intensively, will still produce a, a very good beer. And depending on what your expectation is, you, you'll be uh, happy happy with it. And then if it's run, um, we, we do this uh, one of the tests where instead of having one of the technologists do the develop uh, do the test brews, we just get someone out of the marketing team, for example, and just say here's the can of extract, here's a bucket, have a, have a go and we'll, we'll try it in a couple of weeks. And the, the difference in flavor profile that you can generate from that is, is, is basically that homebrew twang. And it could be one of our, our, our thoughts is it might be potentially residual DMS or, or just a slight um, change or, or slight residual S3 profile, just, just stuff that cannot be taken care of by running a very, very simple brewing process or mm. residual yeast um, because we can get that exact same flavor profile with that sort of, sort of slight homebrewy taste by just running standard all grain malt brews with that same temperature con- uh, fermentation control. So it's just one of the things back when I was taught uh, uh, or studied brewing back in Germany, uh, one of the things we were taught was uh, you can make great work and you can make uh, – and you can ruin great work with bad fermentation control. You, basically, the, the idea is you can make the best work or extract or, or fermentable sugars you can you can think of, but if your fermentation control is not on point, it it doesn't really help yeah, help it, sure. and you can you can damage it quite significantly. The other side of it is that you get with some homebrew products, especially in the more budget range is of course we do uh hopped malt extracts for homebrew products and the the more uh high quality stuff is is made with classic hop products as as a brewer would so pellets and all that the sort of more budget end you go on whether it's our own products or anyone else's hopped malt extracts you start having to of course uh cost optimize products so we end up having things like um pre-isomerized hop extracts in there and they're completely normal products to be used in very large-scale industrial brewing, but they do have a different taste profile and can have slight harshness to them that if you know your fermentation control and your process control, you can take care of. But, of course, if you're at the beginner stage, you you may struggle with – doesn't mean that the beer is no good. It just – it's the difference between paying a pound per pint or five pound per pint. Yep. Okay. So, I mean, wh- whereabouts should a malt extract be applied in the brewing process then? I presume it's just going into your kettle. That very much depends on what kind of malt extract we use. I mean, as Joe already alluded to earlier on, we, we have products that do quite a few different things. So we, we have probably sort of three main categories of, of malt extracts for, for industrial brewing use. The first one would be uh, the, the pale ale malt extract, um, which is 
basically, as you sort of mentioned, using kettle or uh, I, I tend to prefer adding it uh, in the underback because my, my work's moving and I can get it to dissolve nicely and I don't get any lump formation mm. or, or get, get it to drop to the bottom of the vessel. That is basically used as brew house extension or just to either make a beer that's make more beer at an ABV that I can't achieve by just adding malt because my malt, my mash will be full. Yeah. Or, or just increasing my capacity in general. So if I, if I want to make more beer than my brew house is capable of making, I can increase brew length by, by doing that. Yeah. And, so and, liquor, and liquor back, I presume. Yeah. So yeah, but, but basically it's the, the uh, small brewers version of high gravity brewing. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, you can do in, in, in large scale with, very similar process yeah just, just, just if i could just touch upon that uh, actually I'm, I'm quite interested from my own personal reason i've got a one barrel brewery in my cellar um and if i wanted to produce more doing that kind of high gravity brewing like how would i um adjust or how would a brewer adjust their um bitterness when it comes to the hopping rates if you're doing that and you're taking that approach we're just like actually i need to get more out of basically you know, without adding more grain um, by liquoring back, like because obviously you're diluting your wort at that point, and that's obviously going to have an impact on both the the flavour and aroma that you get at flame out, but in particular, I guess the the, the bitterness. Um, it's 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 it, that's where it becomes a, a very technical aspect. So the 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 very basic answer is you work out how many alpha acids uh, or isomerized alpha acids you have in solution. And it, the, the, the IBU is alpha acids per litre, basically. Uh, and so if you're going to up by, say, 200 litres, you, you work out how much, how many more alpha acids you'd need to, uh, to have the target IBU in the end product. For aroma, it, it becomes slightly more difficult because then you, you, you get into either doing it on dilute it and then do a taste test until you're happy or you go into very high levels of detail and work out how much oil of each hops you are <laughs> extracting throughout the boil and how that relates to the dilution and how much it will stay in solution at the end. Um, I very much, unless you are planning to, to pump out a couple of thousand hectolitres a week, uh, would go down the, uh, do a dilution, taste it, <laughs> and adjust right. from there. <laughs> I don't know. Because it's, it makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the 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 general idea is you sort of build your recipe, as it were, to the target volume. So, say you you want to increase by twenty percent volume, you you would when you're putting your recipe together, have a a grist bill, uh, whether it's you, you're doing more grain or adding more extract to achieve gravity at the target level, even though you're not going to achieve it in the in the in the actual boil. And your hop rates are also built to achieve aroma and, and bitterness at the target level. And then when you go to liquor back, you basically um, add the, the that missing bit of water into the recipe. Yeah. Cool. So just talk about the other malt extracts. And I'm also quite keen to find out about um, you, you do a, a low to no ABV malt extracts which I'm pretty sure I read about somewhere the other day. That sounds really interesting. But talk about the other ones as well and, and where to use those. Yeah, so uh, the, the second category would be colour. Uh, we have two products uh, that are called uh, roast malt extract and ultra dark malt extract. 
Uh, I think they basically, the names, the new names very much tell, say what they do. The roast malt extract uh, adds color and roast aroma to the beer and can be added from all the way from kettle through to basically in final pack. We, we make sure that the product is clear on dilution so that it, it you could, in theory, rack off a half a tank of, 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 of pale ale and then add some roast malt extract to make it into a, a darker coloured beer and that you can dial that in from going from pale ale to just, just a sort of amber ale but all, all the way to black, uh, depending on sort of what you want to do. Um, and then the, the other version, the Ultra Dark, is a very similar product. It's basically that, that the, the roast malt extract that we've concentrated the colour to solids ratio. So it has a lot less aroma to it and it's a lot more colour. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's very much used as a small inclusion towards uh, filtration final pack area where you just dial in the colour of the recipe that you want. Um, it can be, again, from making black beers that you can't get with with just the malt inclusions uh, to you might have a batch in tank that is of your parallel, for example, that is just a little bit lighter than you'd like it and you can then sort of just dial in that colour to make sure it's consistent with what, what you've been supplying. Uh, and then the third category is flavour, uh, one that Joe had mentioned being the, the sour product that we, we make that can be used for mash pH adjustment, and flavor adjustment, so either pH adjustment or all the way to in high inclusions, making sour beers with without having to introduce any kind of bacteria in the pro, in the brewing process. Um, where we had a really really not nice beer that uh, we made uh, for Beerex last year, I think it was that that went down really well. Sadly, yeah, I didn't get to go and didn't get any of it. Oh, I, I went, but I can't remember what what was the beer. I think it was a passion fruit sour. Okay, uh, and that, that went away pretty quick. I, I can imagine. Any back. <laughs> uh, and then, then the one, the the, the newest one uh, is the one that you'd mentioned, which is the 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 alcohol free malt extract, and it's it's currently completing its sort of final development stages. So we're we're trying to. Uh, I'm uh, one of the guys going to have to correct me. I think it's July or June. Uh, yeah, June June July launch. Um, yep. We're doing a. Uh, doing a, a soft launch at BeerX online in a couple of weeks but uh, we were doing a taste panel yeah uh, we've given away uh, numerous packs of, of free alcohol free beers to try as well nice so hopefully, hopefully people have uh, joined that <laughs> so um i mean with, with that is it what is it like maltodextrin predominantly or something or what what's the what's the crack with that so, so the idea behind that product is is instead of going down the route of, of trying to make something that just won't ferment and um, dealing with all the sweetness in there, we instead of doing that, we've gone the, the, the non-yeasted option route of, of, of beer product, uh, alcohol-free beer production where it's a dilution of our malt, malt extract product with uh, an inclusion of, of well, dilution to a, a wort, basically. It then can go through a, a wort boil, so a brook, and then, again, basically treat it like classic wort have hop additions as they would normally for bittering, for late hops, for aroma, go through no oxygen inclusion uh, on, on after cooling and it goes into tank and it's basically ready for carbonation and filtration and final pack. The product itself is, is just a malt extract that we've modified throughout our production process 
to take away a lot of the the, the multi sweetness on the front and and modify that flavor profile to a more um, beer like final flavor profile. So it's, it's it's got less malt extract maltiness. It's more cereal and 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 clean for flavor forward and then has a slight fermented aroma on it mm. and it's taken us quite a significant amount of time to to get this developed and, and working um, i'm quite pleased with the alcohol free beers that we developed for our beer x uh, event in a couple of weeks uh, i wasn't too happy last week when i had to bottle them all um i mean ju- ju- just because i'm i'm really interested in this and it's an area that i'm i'm certainly wanting to explore with with my brewery um a lot more but for, for obviously i understand for there are brewers like, uh, like big drop for example um who have had on the show a couple of times before and nirvana as well um that make you know fo- solely focus on alcohol free beers um but i'm aware that there's this it's such a complex process in terms of dealkalizing them you know through vacuum distillation or whatever it is um but but for 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 peasants basically like me that have a small setup but have an interest in producing alcohol free beers like um will a product like this um alcohol free um extracts help because i know that um obviously you know when you got presence of alcohol you've, you've got some natural kind of way of of preserving that product but when when that's stripped right back then i know this is one of the big sticking points for small brewers in particular that they think there's no way of having that kind of quality control and and keeping that product shelf life last long lasting is will this help or so the, the the way we've currently been working on with this extract is is a lot of it is dilution, and then we've done versions with either a preservative in it. So we've had a potassium sorbate, something that goes into most uh, soft drink kind of products, uh, where we have a preservative in, and then we're not worried about um, the shelf life issues. The other option, of course, is um, pasteurization. So we've done um, water bath pasteurization until the core temperature is high enough for long enough that we we don't worry about any of that. Those are two the two main options that I. I would recommend to any smaller producers because it basically it, it takes care of a lot of it. The other option, of course, is is microfiltration, so cold sterile filtration, and um, a, a fairly significant hop level, uh, which will be it, which helps with the the entire sort of shelf life situation. The only downside with that is there is no. 100% control on that because it's not been pasteurized. It's, it's not got a preservative in. There are, again, ways and means around that where gold sterile filtration, high amounts of hops, potentially a, a lower pH will, will help with it. And then putting processes in place where um, the, the product after it's been packed gets uh, either tested for micro to make sure it, make sure you, you're happy with it or if has a, a set rest period in a warehouse before it gets sent anywhere because if any kind of um, low sugars product will start having any issues, it will go very quickly. It's not something where it's going to be fine for three months and then it will go ropey. It will go ropey immediately or it won't. Okay. That's okay. Yeah. So, uh, it's, that just, it just immediately conjured up images of um, those cans where I don't know why some brewers do this, where they add f- fruit puree at the point of canning. I'm just like, 
you're just asking for problems doing that. Like, you're going to stick it in a bright tank and leave it for a bit and let it do the rest of its what it needs to do and then package it. Don't just stick, a, <laughs> stick it in a can and be like, oh, it'll be fine. You need to keep it in the fridge, mate. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you, mate. Yeah. <laughs> um, so just m- moving on from malt extract then, um, just, just to round up, um, un- undoubtedly we're all aware that 2020 has, has been... Um, I don't know how to put it mildly, a bit of a crap year for everyone. Um, and we, we're in 2021 now and, and you know, the, there's some light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, but who, who knows what will happen um, in the coming months. So h- how has COVID impacted the malt supply chain and Munson's? And then just on top of that, how's leaving the European Union and the single market affecting maltsters and the supplies of malts both ways to and from the EU? Um, My small oh, questions to kind of round up. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for finishing it on a light note. Um, <laughs> it's uh, yeah. Um, well, taking the first point about COVID um, and how that's impacted. Two very different questions there because it's impacted us in terms of, as you know yourself, the breweries, the hospitality sector being closed. Um, the so the, the the customer base and, and the volume has been affected. Um, distilling was proven to be quite strong early on, but Again, that was impacted because such small teams and these distilleries nestled in the glens that if someone's asked to self-isolate, it affects the whole distillery and that can affect production. So um, distilling has not been um, it, it's not been without its challenges as well. With regards to the supply chain, um, it's been relatively okay, and I say that tentatively, um, where we've had impacts in COVID is things like haulage companies and, and and a lack of drivers and things through either isolation or or, or simply companies struggling through the, the COVID period. Um, as we all know, the uh, haulage drivers are the backbone of our country. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, without them, we just don't have anything really. So that we've had to keep a close eye on that. Um, simple things, small things, likes of we would normally go out and meet with merchants and farmers to, um, you know, look at what crops we're bringing in and things. That's not been able to happen in the last 12 months. So there have been impacts there, but overall we have, likes of the brewers and the distillers, we have adapted quite uh, significantly to overcome and put safety measures in place so that, and, and we've done that quite quickly. I, I would like to add, you know, our, our um, sort of lead team and, and senior leadership team, were quite proactive in getting um, the, the correct safety measures in place so that we could continue operating safely and protecting our workforce and our partners that we work with um, in the sort of uh, barley merchants and farmers as well. So we've been okay. There have been other businesses that have been affected much, much uh, worse than we have, but the, um, the COVID has undoubtedly had its um, had its impact somewhere on everyone. So mm. it's... Um, it's just about how we we attack that uh, challenge and how we we overcome it. Um, on the, the the second point about Brexit, the dreaded B word, um, it it went on and on, and I think we were all holding our breath towards the end of last year, and um, particularly with some of the uh, the tariffs that were being proposed with a no no deal Brexit um, on not just malting barley but um, you know, uh, feed and wheat and and everything that, that the whole um, agricultural um, sector was going to be impacted quite significantly. 
Thankfully, though, with the trade agreement that we have in place um, now, we will not be as negatively impacted as we thought. Um, it's not massively impacted um, the the malt grain in terms of supplying breweries and distilleries because very, very approximately around 9% um, of malt that's exported went to the EU. The rest went you know, to non-EU countries um, and the rest of the world. So, um, But what it did have an impact on was our malted ingredients division um, mm. and homebrew. That's, they were the ones that were really kind of on edge because of what was, what was being proposed. However, you know, we're, we're going up the same challenges as every business um, throughout the UK. Has everybody got their EORI numbers? And um, we, we did see a bit of clogging of the, uh, the ports and uh, trying to get a hold of containers. I know my, my colleagues on the, uh, on the show today um, who deal a lot with uh, export um, into uh, Southeast Asia and things like that um, were dealing with some challenges when it came to um, procuring containers and and getting things through the ports and and things simply because there was such a, a, a massive rush before the Brexit deal was uh, was uh, was achieved. So um, I'm kind of top lining it here because I don't want to go into the, the nitty gritty of Brexit because mm-hmm. I really have had enough of it. Um, it it's been a positive outcome, shall we say, to to leave it on a sort of high that the the trade agreement that's that's in place. There are still things to be ironed out, um, but it could have been a hell of a lot worse. So yep. we're quite grateful to be in the position that we're in and, and just try and, you know, navigate through the waters of just all the sort of weed nitty gritty things that we need to do and um, you know, all, all make sure all the paperwork's correct and everything. So we're pleased with the outcome and hopefully we can, uh, we can continue to grow our sales in the, uh, in the EU and work well with them. Happy days. Cool. Well, last but not least, where, where do you fellas see the brewing industry heading over the next few years and, and what challenges do you think are going to come particularly into focus? I think for, firstly, a massive um, congratulations and, and hats off to um, the brewing industry, industry as a whole, the way that they adapted so quickly when, you know, literally COVID struck overnight, we were told the pubs were shutting, which was, you know, up well over 90% of their probably their, um, their uh, output, their sales, um, but they adapted e-commerce, small pack, <coughs> selling direct to consumers, um, and they just did a fantastic job, really. So, yeah, I'd like to say that. But um, <clears throat> more on your question, I think the one good thing to have come out of COVID-19 um, is there is a general trend of consumers to spend a bit more money on, like, premium beers, spirits. Mm. Um, and we, we, we do believe that this will, will continue. Um, as people choose more premium or like crafted artisanal products. Um, and that would be a great boost for the craft brewers, for the smaller brewers out there. Um, but also COVID-19 showed us how important it is to have a diverse range of customers <clears throat> and not just rely on one sector um, being on trade. Um, so I think brewers are likely to continue pushing sales direct to consumers, whether that's in small pack, via e-commerce, or through their own bars and, and tap rooms as well, which you know we, we saw that increasing before COVID, but COVID certainly kind of been the the, the rocket to, to focus on that a bit more. I think, um, and innovation in beers will still be key. You know, it's about standing out from the crowd, um, and also as we touched on earlier, the huge growth that's going on with no and low alcohol beers. Yep. You know, there's there's no shying away from it. It is it is in big growth. Yeah. And we'll continue. But yeah, I don't know if anyone else has got any thoughts on that. 
<clears throat> yeah, I, I would echo the comments. Uh, it, the the brewing sector has to be commended for how well they have adapted. We've we've seen it as Adam touched on. You know, going to small pack. You know, um, you know, getting sort of e-commerce up and running. Um, and we do hope that when as the hospitality sector opens up, there will be a a, a a new boom. You know, everyone expected that craft beer bubble to burst, and it just refused to do so. And I think this will just unify the industry and really strengthen as we come out of it. Um, I, I being a part of this community, I think it's it's been really heartening to see how close the communities come together, and um, you know how everyone the brewing industry is unlike any other, where they all want to help each other and see each other as colleagues as opposed to competitors. And mm. we, we as a extended part of that, feel really sort of privileged to be a part of it. Um, and I think that has to continue. And I don't. It's not a switch. It's not. We're not just going to return to pubs and that's it. God, that was a dreadful, you know, year and a half. It will be a gradual thing, and we have to continue communicating with each other, helping each other, um, and that's something that the brewing industry has always um, prided themselves on. And and to be commend to yourself, Nick, as well, because your podcast is a, a shining example of that. That you know, there's lots of platforms and mediums in which we can communicate and keep in touch. Everybody loves a, a Zoom family quiz these days and hmm. everything like that. But things like, you know, your podcast and, and other mediums in which that we try and remain a community and stay together is the way that we'll come out the other end of this. So I'd like to take this opportunity to congratulate you on on um, keeping this sort of <laughs> beacon of uh, some form of hope in the uh, in these kind of rubbish times as we've, as we've paddled through it. Oh, thank Bye. you. Cheers for that. Any, anyone else? Any more for any more? No, great. Silence. There we go. Silence. There you go. Um, Bill. Well, thanks. Thanks for being on the show. Uh, how, how can people find out more about Muntons and connect with you for their malting needs? Sure. So um, they can go on the website uh, www.muntons.com, or they can email um, hello at muntons.com, um, or follow us on our socials. Um, we're basically we're on all, across all platforms as Muntons itself, and also myself. Uh, Joe and David are on Twitter and Instagram as well. Um, so yeah, get in touch and we'll, we're happy to discuss any issues you might have. Great stuff, thank you. You can stuff into that marshmallow whipped cream creme brulee brilliant creme blue that marshmallow whipped cream creme blue marshmallow marshmallow whipped cream creme brulee creme brulee whipped cream whipped cream creme brulee blueberry muffin that marshmallow whipped cream creme brulee that marshmallow whipped cream creme brulee that marshmallow whipped cream creme brulee blueberry muffin macadia that marshmallow whipped cream creme brulee well, it's that time again at the bar for another week of the Hot 4 podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify and all other good platforms. Be sure to visit hotforward.beer to find out how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. We make your beer look as good as it tastes and we help you brew up a better business through branding, marketing and consultancy. Remember to follow us on social media at Hot Forward Beers 
and for another week. Cheers. Well, it's that time again at the bar for another week of the Hot 4 podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify and all other good platforms. Be sure to visit hotforward.beer to find out how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. We make your beer look as good as it tastes and we help you brew up a better business through branding, marketing and consultancy. Remember to follow us on social media at Hot Forward Beers and for another week. Cheers.